You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Dr. William Malone is a board-certified endocrinologist. He's a graduate of Stanford University with a BA in Human Biology and New York University Medical School. He completed residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism at the Los Angeles County University of Southern California Medical Center. He's been in clinical practice since 2008 and holds an appointment as an assistant clinical professor of endocrinology from the Idaho College of Osteopathic Medicine. Here's our conversation with Will. Hi there, Stella here and uh, myself and Sasha are very excited that we've got the one and only Will Malone here to speak to us. The endocrinologist that first came to my attention a couple of years ago and I'm so interested in what Will has to say you know, about everything. It's not just about puberty blockers, but all sorts of things to do with hormones. Will seems to have a very incisive and sharp um, analysis of the situation. So I'm really looking forward to this following hour. Welcome, Will. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So we were wondering if you could perhaps just start us out with a, a little bit of background of how this uh, topic of um, hormonal intervention in children. How did that come onto your radar? Maybe you could tell us a bit about how you got interested in this. So I would say um, uh, two things um, simultaneously started to happen, um, probably in 2017. Um, so the first thing was uh, I started to get calls from uh, local primary care doctors, and uh, they were describing essentially um, a cohort, uh, uh, basically a sudden appearance of uh, young adolescent uh, uh, females uh, who were declaring themselves uh, to be um, uh, transgender. And uh, they were calling my office and saying, hey, uh, this this is a, a totally new uh, thing for us. We've not seen this before. Um, uh, what's going on here? Uh, can you can you help us out? And and essentially, what they were describing uh, was uh, typically in uh, kind of small clusters uh, of uh, adolescent uh, uh, females, uh, girls, um, that one of a friend group uh, would declare themselves as uh, uh, transgender and then essentially uh, others in that, in that friend group as well. And so the primary docs were started to call my office and say, um, we're seeing something that we haven't seen before. Uh, they were obviously aware of the, uh, you know, the cultural uh, um, shift or things that were occurring uh, as well. Uh, but then they, they started to see this uh, in their own practice and uh, they were unprepared and started to reach out. Sorry, can I ask, what were they asking for? What did they want your help with? Yeah, so so they, they really, uh, they wanted to know what to do. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they had a, a, 
you know, a patient in front of them uh, of varying degrees of distress. And essentially, uh, some were stating, you know, I'm, I'm non-binary or I'm, um, you know, transgender, whatever the uh, descriptor was, uh, uh, varying degrees of distress, some requesting hormones, uh, some not. Uh, but uh, they essentially were caught off guard uh, by the presentation of uh, uh, this, um, I, you know, of, of these uh, young women uh, to their offices. And, and so they were basically asking, what do I do? And could I ask, yeah. what was your experience until then of transitioning people or transitioning younger people or older people, anybody? Yeah. So, so as an endocrinologist, um, you know, and I, consider myself, you know, I'm an adolescent and adult endocrinologist. Most of my patients are um, adults, uh, but uh, uh, some adolescents. Uh, But as part of that training and, you know, in the field of endocrinology, um, this this phenomenon of gender dysphoria has been known uh, essentially, you know, quote unquote, forever, at least from my standpoint, uh, because I'm, uh, you know, I've been in practice now for about 15 years or so, but uh, certainly going back to the, to the fifties in the medical literature. And so this is, you know, this is not a completely um, unknown entity for endocrinologists. This, uh, it, it wasn't a big part of our training, but we certainly knew going back a long time that there were a small number of, uh, uh, of children who developed gender dysphoria. Most would resolve. Uh, with uh, with puberty, uh, but some would have persistent and severe gender dysphoria um, through through puberty and then into young adulthood, and they would seek out um, cross sex hormones and surgeries. Um, and there was, you know, kind of the way it was is well, there was a you know there was an endocrinologist. Usually, this was in larger cities, and a surgeon who would. Uh, prescribe hormones and then uh, um, potentially surgeries uh, for patients who were seeking them. Uh, we knew that there was not a uh, good evidence base to support these interventions, uh, even uh, you know back then or and even now. Uh, this was kind of a uh, um, you know I don't know how to it was a it was something that occurred outside of mainstream practice, I, mm. I guess I would, I would put it. Uh, we knew that um, in terms of the, the folks who had gender dysphoria and who were uh, looking for these hormones and surgeries, um, you know, it was the traditional understanding that um, some were same-sex attracted men <clears throat> who uh, traditionally came from backgrounds where homosexuality was not um, accepted. Uh, these folks uh, typically came from uh, African-American or Latino um, uh, backgrounds, uh, and there was a high rate of um, uh, prostitution in this group um, and a lot of risk in terms of uh, infectious disease and, uh, and such. And the other group were, uh, uh, we didn't really know this term, but uh, basically men with what we now know is autogynophilia. So essentially these are heterosexual men who are um, sexually aroused by the thought of themselves uh, as women. And so that was our traditional understanding of, uh, of gender dysphoria. Those were the two uh, predominant groups of folks who were presenting. And so that's been going on for, for a long time. What was new um, 
and and it really kind of hit my community here in the mid so it was 2015 16 and 17 um was a shift from predominantly uh, males to females and uh, not the traditional childhood onset, but more of a later, even, you know, after the onset of puberty onset of gender dysphoria or this proclamation of a transgender identification, whether or not we can even consider this new cohort as having gender dysphoria. I'm I'm sure, you know, we can kind of debate debate Um, that. I want to emphasize that like Harry Benjamin, who started WPATH and he called it the Harry Benjamin International Association of Gender Dysphoria, um, he was an endocrinologist. And so it's really like the endocrinologists are center to this. The surgeons, the endocrinologists and the psychologists are the, the main three who bring this about as, as a kind of as a team. And so I think people often forget just how important the endocrinologist is in this. And the Norman Spack also um, is an endocrinologist. And he's the guy for anybody who doesn't know. He's an American endo- pediatric endocrinologist who, who was, as he says himself, and I'm quoting, salivating at the idea of puberty blockers when he first heard about them because he was so excited about the, the vista that had opened up that he could block a, a puberty and maybe simulate another kind of chemical puberty of the opposite sex. And this is very much a case of what your science can do, I feel, with endocrinology and same with surgery. It opens up all sorts of concepts about what, what you can do. And I'd imagine, I'm asking you a very long intro there, Will, but I'd imagine there's something very alluring about testing your field to the limits that I'd imagine there's endocrinologists out there who just want to know, well, how far can we go with endocrinology? Where does it bring us? Yeah, it's, an, it's a really interesting um, take on it. So, so this kind of um, links to the second thing that started happening, and, and then I'll um, try to get back to what you just said. So, so you're right. So the endocrinologists are key because uh, you know, we're the prescribers of, of these hormones, these powerful, powerful drugs. Um, and, and we do this as part of our routine practice. And so we have a, 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 with other medical conditions, I mean, this essentially our, our job is to interrogate, um, abnormalities in, in hormones. And then if levels are too high, we bring them back to normal. If they're too low, we bring them up to normal, essentially trying to reestablish, uh, equilibrium. So, uh, so the second thing that started to occur linked to this was around the same time that I was getting phone calls from primary care docs uh, saying, Hey, what, you know, what's going on here with this new presentation of, uh, of gender dysphoria, this adolescent onset. Uh, the second thing was um, in 2017, uh, the endocrine society uh, basically um, they, they put out a, a position statement for the uh, to guide endocrinologists. And, you know, the endocrine society is a massive organization uh you know, their national meetings pre-COVID would have four or 5,000 attendees um, from all over the world. And they put out guidelines, highly respected organization. They put out guidelines uh, um, to, uh, to guide endocrinologists. And uh, so 2017, uh, they put out guidelines and, and I, was, I was at the meeting. And uh, they essentially, in stark contrast to you know my previous experiences, they, they rolled out a set of guidelines uh, for uh, gender dysphoric adolescents and children um, that had uh, really no evidence base. 
and uh, essentially said that, okay, your job as an endocrinologist now is to uh, medically affirm um, uh, children, well, adolescents, uh, uh, with puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones uh, should, you know, should should uh, that patient or should the, the mental health professional taking care of that patient uh, recommend them? And uh, so this, this was, uh, this was shocking to myself and many others who were listening. Uh, and uh, when, uh, and the reason I'm shocking is that puberty blockers, uh, if you start puberty blockers and these recommendations essentially uh, said, okay, at Tanner stage two, which is early puberty, it's just after puberty starts. Um, if you start puberty blockers at tenor stage two, and then you follow those with cross-sex hormones, so for a for a young girl, it would be puberty blockers followed by testosterone. Uh, there's an almost certainty that she'll be um, infertile or or sterile. Uh, so, and the same for for boys uh, put on this pathway. So, essentially, the Endocrine Society came out with guidelines uh, recommending. A, a treatment protocol that results in the, in addition to the other irreversible changes that come with cross-sex hormones and the complete lack of data showing that, uh, uh, you know, uh, puberty blockers are in fact reversible. And that's a, um, a debatable statement for normal puberty. They essentially put out these guidelines um, and, uh, and, and said your job is to affirm. And so we started to, I started to look in, in close what detail. What did you think when you saw it, when you saw the guidelines, when you first saw them? Well, I said, I thought to myself, well, you know, my previous experiences with the Endocrine Society have been very good. And so there must be some landmark study that's occurred. Yeah. Some, some massive change in the landscape that I, that I missed, okay, somehow, mm-hmm. um, which would be unlikely mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, I stay up to date and I'm, on the email list and all sorts of things, right? So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, boy, there, there just there must be some piece of evidence in this document that is stunning to to uh, uh, basically shift the landscape to uh, recommend uh, that you know uh, mental health support and psych- you know psychological support and psychotherapy are out and affirmation is in. There must be some stunning piece of evidence uh, inside this document. And so I open the document, and it's not there. There is no stunning piece of evidence. Uh, you know, these recommendations are um, based off of a, essentially for puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, a single um, uh, uncontrolled study out of the Netherlands. And, uh, you know, when you look into that study in, in, in some more detail, uh, you see that uh, it, it's... So there, in the scientific world, in the academic world, there are ways to rate the quality of evidence. And obviously, something that has more quality evidence, you take more seriously and, and you think, uh, well, if this is high quality evidence, if I do something following this high quality evidence, if I intervene, the chance that I'll make a mistake is low. But this evidence was low quality evidence because there's no control group. It was a small, it was a small group. There were a lot of confounding factors. And so it's understood in, you know, in academic medicine and in medicine in general, if, if you intervene based on low quality evidence, if you make a clinical decision based on low quality evidence, there's a, there's a decent or high probability that you'll be wrong. And, uh, and so in those situations, uh, you know, and so the question really becomes, and you know, this, this group, um, 
uh, that's uh, that I've helped form uh, is is essentially come to this conclusion, which is that the quality of evidence uh, to support interventions, medical interventions for gender dysphoria, meaning puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgeries, is so low uh, that essentially these should still be considered experimental therapies, meaning um, they have not been proven to work, and so they need more investigation. They shouldn't be uh, accessible to the general public outside of um, controlled trials, uh, meaning um, these trials are designed in such a way that you can actually determine whether or not they provide psychological benefit for the people who are participating in them. And those types of trials have not been done yet. And so in the absence of those, you know, these interventions are, are still experimental. Um, sorry. So Stella, so back to your, to circle back along way to get back to your point, which is essentially, Yes, uh, in a way, and in a in a strictly scientific definition, endocrinologists who are prescribing puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to adolescents outside of clinical trials are engaged in experimental medicine. They are experimenting, essentially, by the classic definition. This is not even an opinion. This is just a definition. If you're engaged in these activities when there's not high quality evidence to support them, you're essentially engaged in experimental medicine. And, and that's what you start to see. What you've described is, well, let's see what we can do. Uh, it, it turns into a, a very chaotic um, uh, scenario. And the consequence of that is that people will be harmed. And that's what we're seeing. Gosh, it's really incredible to try and synthesize all of what you're saying. First of all, we're recording this in December of the year 2020, and the UK has just ruled in a, really a very landmark judicial review that prescribing puberty blockers to minors is something they cannot consent to. And in the ruling, they described after a lengthy investigation that this is experimental. So everything you're saying and everything that you've been saying, and we'll talk about SEGM, which is the organization that we're, we're talking about here, has been corroborated by this really extensive review in the UK. Yeah. And there's just a couple things that stand out to me that are really fascinating and, and gets me curious if there's any precedent here in medicine. But first of all, you describe that uh, gender dysphoric people prior to the mid-2010s, were treated in kind of niche clinics right. that were outside of what the mainstream medical community was comfortable doing. Yes. That's how I interpret it. That's uh, exactly. So when the pediatric, uh, the endocrine, endocrine society put out that statement advising mainstream endocrinologists, mainstream, to start using procedures that were even more experimental than what the niche physicians were using. That seems like a very remarkable rushed uh, direction to go in. Yes. And, and I, I was struck too, by the way you, you initially assumed you could defer to the authority of the endocrine society because they're such a reputable yeah. key point organization. Yep. And so you happen to say, well, there must be some data in here that justifies this seemingly radical decision. Let me take a look. I wonder what's your, what's your 
pulse on this. Do you think a lot of other endocrinologists took the time to look into it in the way you did? Or did other people just assume, well, it must be good reason and just move on and look away? Because obviously you became really, really curious about this. And you've now spent a lot of your energy personally trying to research the data and understand this. But do you think that happened to a lot of other endocrinologists when they put out that position statement? Yeah, I can, you know, I can, um, I can answer that partially with a little bit of speculation and also just my own, you know, interactions with uh, my colleagues. So it was really fascinating because, um, you know, at the same conference where they rolled out these uh, recommendations that had low quality evidence and, and furthermore, when you looked, you know, the, uh, it, you know, it states right in the document that uh, these interventions, uh, the goal of the interventions was uh, to favor uh, cosmetic uh, changes in appearance uh, over potential harms from uh, these uh, these interventions. And, and the harms are, you know, significant, right? We're talking about infertility and uh, you know, a woman who takes testosterone, her voice will drop um, uh, significantly, you know, within a few months of initiation. There are facial changes, hair changes, skin changes, um, all sorts of stuff. So uh, increased risk of heart disease long term. I mean, the risks are significant. Um, so now, so at the same conference, um, it, it, the and it was interesting to see the, uh, you know, these these two things happen side by side. So, uh, and, and this would be more typical, you know, there were hour long discussions in front of a large audience where you would have two of the world's experts on a particular topic and there might be 10 X, you know, so people at the top of their field in this, in this niche area of endocrinology. So let's say it's adrenal tumors or, um, type two diabetes. And so over the course of an hour, you would have a discussion uh, where one individual, one expert would present, okay, here's why you all out there should start prescribing this new diabetes medication. And and here's my, you know, review the literature and here's my impression of this and et cetera, et cetera. And then on the flip side, you'd have somebody else saying, no, you all should not start prescribing this new medication because it's too expensive and it's not been tested enough and and basically make a counterpoint argument. And this would go on, you know, with slides um, over the course of an hour. Really just brilliant stuff. Yeah. And and how you would expect, uh, how as we as clinicians expect these conferences to be run, and and I suppose on the outside how how lay folks would expect uh, uh, medical professionals to be carrying out their business of figuring out what the best interventions for suffering people are. And so at the same conference, you have this, these point-counterpoint discussions of, no, you should not operate on adrenal tumors. You should intervene with uh, medical therapy, and, and, and here's why, et cetera, et cetera, back and forth. Really brilliant things, um, uh, discussions. Uh, and in the case of uh, gender dysphoria, there was none of that. There was no discussion at all. Um, it was difficult even to submit questions uh, after they presented uh, the the guidelines. Um, uh, it was uh, uh, done under an atmosphere of this is how it's going to be, and if you ask questions, you're a bigot. Um, it was it was in stark contrast uh, to the rest of of how that organization operates. Who who's the they? I mean, you said they would say you're a bigot. Was it the the presenters? 
this is kind of no no one said that this this is the the impression that that's given essentially Fair is enough. that yes. is that this is this is this is how it's going to be and if and if you ask questions there's there's probably something wrong with you you need to take a look at yourself it, it, so so the atmosphere was completely different than uh, the openness of uh, uh, the discussions that occur uh, with other uh, as they should occur. And so that was that was a major red flag. And it was a red flag. Setting this atmosphere, Will, was it the presenters who were talking about the interventions people should be performing on gender yeah. kids? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, okay. and, so it's, and it's, it's the tone and also, well, this is just how it is. And, yeah. you know, this is this is the spectrum of gender and sex now. Mm. And, and, and so essentially, in, in contrast to so. Um, and so the endocrine society is allowing these types of presentations to occur. So in contrast to, um, okay, here's what the literature shows. And then based on the literature, here are some recommendations. It was, okay, here, uh, now these are the definitions and this is decided. And yeah. we're not going to discuss what it means to be gender dysphoric or transgender or non-binary. This, this, we've decided these definitions and we're now going to dictate this information to you. And so the tone was completely different. It was no longer a scientific debate. It was, this is how it is, and uh, this is how it's going to be. And so that was very startling. Did you, may, may I ask that conference, did you discuss with your colleagues, wow, this is a new way of doing things. This is a new approach. It seems very dogmatic. You know, at that, at that point in time, um, you know, certainly, yes, it was, have you looked at this? There's, there's no, there's no evidence to support these interventions. This is low quality evidence. Um, and so the, and this gets into the kind of the interaction between culture and medicine, you know, that there's no cultural space to question, to ask questions about this topic. And so that cultural um, atmosphere had infiltrated the medical conference and uh, wow. and so uh, there was you know self censorship and very difficult to get anybody to speak honestly. But as soon as you ask them about you know this diabetes medication or whatever it is, oh no, you shouldn't be doing that. Have you seen this? Like blah blah blah. But when you ask about, hey, have you seen you know there's not a lot of quality evidence here. Don't you think uh, you know psychotherapy or you know some other form of uh, psychological support uh, could be beneficial? Oh, well, you know. Maybe I, I don't know. I haven't you know, very you know the, um, avoidance essentially. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. No one wants to take a position. I, I, I would like to jump in here. I believe very strongly that people think it's way beyond my understanding. I don't know why somebody might want to transition, so I'm not going to touch it. I'm just going to follow the rules because I don't get it at all. So it's it's almost comes from wouldn't quite say transphobic, but certainly trans on understanding. Just kind of. Don't get it. Give me the instructions because I'm too afraid to have an opinion on it. Yeah. So the medical professionals, um, if if you have so so my colleagues, so if you have a relationship with these folks and, and they um, and they feel that they can be more honest, oh, they'll they'll be honest and they'll say, yeah, you're right. There's no evidence here. Um, no, this, this doesn't make any sense. This is in stark contrast to how other areas of medicine evolve. Uh, there's been suppression of debate. Um, uh, but you know, in a, in a stressful, you know, medicine is, there's a lot of stressors 
and uh, you know days are busy, and so you know routine clinicians, uh, not routine. What I mean is, um, in the day of a routine uh, practice, you know uh, uh, clinicians are are going to uh, often choose the path of least resistance, which is either avoidance or just simply referral out to uh, someone um, who's um, willing to see these patients, and and that oftentimes. It means uh, an affirming counselor or, you know, a gender clinic where um, we know uh, that once a kid, you know, based on the, the data that we do have, you know, once a kid gets started on puberty blockers, essentially, they're going to be, uh, uh, the chance of them going on to cross-sex hormones, you know, puberty halts the, no surprise, it halts, it does what a puberty blocker does. It halts the uh, development, uh, you know, physical, um, psychosocial development of an individual. And so the chance of them uh, coming to a, a stable gender identity um, consistent with their biological sex is uh, likely not going to happen. And so all these kids go on across sex hormones, 98, 99, 100%. And that was an, another finding, right, of this recent UK court case. Uh, that uh, essentially puberty blockers have to be considered, and the evidence supports this as the first step in in sequential uh, interventions. I, I want to ask a question that comes up for me. You talked about how you know behind closed doors with colleagues that have you know close rapport, people can acknowledge with one another that there's really no good evidence for these interventions. I'm curious about how does this entire dynamic lend itself to like what type of endocrinologist actually pursues gender medicine specifically? You know, I wonder if this whole thing has created a kind of funnel where endocrinologists who want to go into this area of medicine have already either dismissed the fact that all the evidence is really low quality or perhaps aren't willing to disregard the evidence. Like what's your sense about that? Like what endocrinologist pursues making this a full-time career of puberty blockade and cross-sex hormones, knowing that there's so little good evidence and no controlled studies? Yeah, that's that's a good question, and it, I think it gets into, especially the United States, um, where right we have um, a profit-driven healthcare system, and you know, I, I, um, so one of the one of the legitimate critiques of what's occurred culturally is, and, and this is known in other areas of medicine as well, is that if you if you um, if you create a new product, essentially, uh, if there's demand for something, you offer it, it kind of, it fuels itself. It begins to cycle on itself. So there's, there's more demand, there's, and then there's more uh, clinics opening, et cetera. So, you know, in 2010, I think there were about six, you know, uh, gender clinics in the United States. And now there are more than 50, and I think even close to 70 at last count. I think there's 65 last time I checked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and this doesn't even count the, uh, um, you know, clinics who wouldn't consider themselves to be quote unquote gender clinics. So they're not going to be kind of traditional referral centers. You know, this, this will be a Planned Parenthood or another small community clinic, or even like a, you know, a clinic, uh, at a, at a college or a university. 
uh, where uh, many of these places are operating under informed consent models where essentially you walk in the door. And so this would be for folks who are 18, 18 or older, uh, but uh, you don't have to undergo any psychological evaluation. Or, and if you do, it's essentially with a, with a counselor who advertise themselves, advertises themselves as uh, lowering the threshold, uh, as making it easy essentially to get the letter, quote unquote, so that you can uh, get cross-sex hormones. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's definitely a, so the, so the endocrinologists who are not interested in um, prescribing cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers uh, because there's no evidence to show that long-term psychological improvements occur, um, they're basically just going to be completely outside of all this occurring. Um, and then there will be endocrinologists who um, are just going to follow the guidelines because that's what the guidelines state and they'll, they'll feel comfortable doing that. And then there are others who will look in more depth uh, and, and realize uh, there's a big problem. So, so there's definitely market driven forces that have, uh, I think that's the best way to answer that, uh, that have uh, resulted in an explosion of, of uh, clinics offering uh, these interventions uh, that are, you know, as I mentioned before, these are considered experimental. Um, it's it's fascinating when you hear like when kind of demand creates supply and then supply creates further demand and endocrinologists are suddenly in the center of this massive phenomenon that pres- never, they never really had to kind of think about very deeply before and they've been kind of landed a, into it right in the middle. So I'm very keen to hear, very keen to hear about what you have to say about puberty and when it's blocked and all that. But before that, perhaps if you could tell us w- how we all, all three of us met in, in, in Segum and how that came about for you. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, uh, so Segum, the Society uh, for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, uh, essentially, um, it kind of organically came together, uh, 2000, I guess 2018, um, after, you know, these experiences that I started to have, and I realized that others were having similar experiences and, um, uh, we're concerned that the general public uh, and also, um, you know, clinicians were were not aware of really what had gone on to bring us to the point that we were, uh, that there was a lack of evidence uh, to support these interventions, that there were significant risks uh, associated with them. Um, and there was, there was no place for folks who were questioning um, uh, either, you know, lay people or clinicians uh, who are questioning uh, this uh, rush to affirmation to um, educate themselves and to make contact with others who had similar concerns. And, uh, and so that's how the, uh, uh, the organization got put together. And, you know, very quickly, uh, uh, you know, uh, two or three people and they know two or three people who know two or three people. And before you know it, we have, you know, over a hundred, uh, uh, clinicians, um, who have uh, basically come together to share, uh, stories and information and, and to, um, uh, uh, kind of work together towards that purpose of educating, uh, the public and other clinicians through scientific writings, uh, and through, through our website, um, uh, to, 
to raise awareness so that folks can make good decisions uh, or at least know that there's not good information out there when they're attempting to make good decisions uh, for uh, uh, kids, you know, young adults uh, who are um, struggling with gender dysphoria. So, so that's how we all um, uh, got connected together and um, how that organization got, uh, got started. Well, what's important to me is that by the time Segum started to come together, I think there were already several really great blogs for parents, for example, or um, some young people who had adverse experiences taking, you know, gender interventions Mm -hmm. were talking about the transition, but there wasn't really a place for medical professionals, mental health professionals to organize and say, wait a minute, there is not a medical consensus here. And it's kind of interesting because there's been this, you know, kind of institutional capture where all of these large medical and psychiatric organizations um, have kind of gotten behind this gender medicine. And I'm starting to see with the UK ruling, at least in Europe and other countries around the world, uh, these large organizations, even these gender clinics, are starting to pump the brakes. And I'm hoping that the U.S. will catch up. But perhaps we can talk a little bit about the U.K. ruling and what it is that they found uh, regarding puberty blockers. And, and how do you think this will impact medical professionals who are curious about what's going on? So let's let's talk a bit about the U.K. ruling from an technology point of view. Yeah, sure. So, so I mean, the conclusion that they came to was, you know, as you said, um, an accurate representation of where we stand, uh, which is uh, that, uh, you know, these interventions are experimental, um, that young people can't uh, understand the implications of initiating puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones and, and surgeries. Um, uh, let's see. And, and, and that makes sense, um, you know, based on our understanding of, of brain development, you know, that, uh, you know, kind of cognitive maturity does not occur until the mid twenties. And this is something else that it really is drilled into, um, physicians brains right from the start. So for example, it's very unusual to, uh, send a woman for a, a hysterectomy that would render her sterile before the age of 25, even if she, even if she wants to, because there's a general understanding that minds change uh, before, you know, the age of cognitive maturity. And, and especially if, you know, if, if an individual has an autism spectrum condition or some other, some other situation that might delay uh, brain maturity, um, that age of maturity might, might even be later. So basically, you know, the court, confirmed really what we know, which is kids can't understand, um, uh, the implications of these decisions, um, uh, that th- these are experimental therapies. And also they acknowledged, uh, what the literature shows, which is, you know, puberty blockers are not a standalone intervention. Um, if a kid goes on a puberty blocker, the, the likelihood that they'll go on to cross sex hormones is, is close to a hundred percent. It's 98, 99%. And so we can't consider, you know, that's another cultural myth out there. You know, there are several, you know, and that's a big one is that puberty blockers are quote unquote reversible. 
and uh, and buy time to decide for that individual, that child to decide whether or not, or the family, you know, a group decision about whether or not the kid is going to go on to cross-sex hormones, the child. And, and that's just not reality. The reality is puberty blockers are the first step in this essentially inevitable cascade of interventions. Um, so that was my takeaway, uh, you know, uh, from, from that ruling. It was, that it was a, a great confirmation and affirmation, to steal that word, of reality, which is... Um, um, I'd like to jump in. Like the, 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 the considered one of the best judges in the UK studied thousands of pages of evidence for this ruling. So the, it's the first, as far as I would say, massive analysis of of it without an agenda. They, they were judges. They, they, they had a team and they were just trying to analyze and they sought more evidence and they continuously sought more evidence and didn't receive it. And then it felt very bizarre when the Tavistock released almost immediately after the ruling um, the evidence that the High Court had sought from them, which was a study that they had started in 2011, that he had apparently finished by 2014. They were analysing the results and I, I, there was a lot of kind of ifs and buts and different things happening. But effectively, they, 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 they went to go about publishing it within days after the ruling. It feels really murky. Um, and we could go off into that a lot. But to be honest, now that you're in front of me, I'm dying to hear what does puberty bring us hormonally and what does the stopping of puberty do hormonally to a person? That's really yeah. what's really chiming in my head as something that I'd like to hear you talk about. Yeah, sure. So, so, um, so the first thing you said is a great point. Uh, you know, it's curious, why, why did why did that study, um, um, why was that essentially published, you know, a day or two after the ruling? And what's interesting is, you know, the study, and it's difficult to even call that a study. It's almost, it was just basically a description. It didn't ask a clinical question. It didn't, There were no you know, there was no mental variables, right? Yeah, there was no control group. Right. Yeah, right. it was, it was disappointing because, um, um, you know, if they had designed that study, uh, appropriately, we could have gotten a lot of really good information from and it. And could I just point in for anybody who doesn't know yeah. that this is the Tavistock who created this study, that, you know, the, the JIDS in the Gender Identity Development Service in the UK, which is the largest gender identity development service in the UK run by the NHS. It's the big boy in the UK who was carrying out this study. And their lack of data was probably one of the most shocking, well, one of the many shocking features of it. Yeah, that's you're right. You know, it's this is a well-respected, worldwide known um, institution uh, that uh, you know clinic um, that didn't design a study essentially, uh, and and it really boggles the mind because um, in a sense it's almost it's almost ten years wasted. Uh, we could have had a, a significant uh, amount of information if they had had a control group uh, to compare. Uh, these interventions to, and so essentially, what they what they published was just a description of what you would expect of what puberty blockers do. There, there was nothing nothing really new. Uh, puberty blockers halt physical uh, the physical development of you know uh, stop puberty, and puberty is arguably and and is the most significant developmental time for a human. Wow. 
in terms of physical uh, and psychosocial development. It's this integrated process of uh, uh, physical development, the sexual maturity, uh, and uh, and then you know as as that occurs, that individual has um, age appropriate psychosocial sexual interactions with peers and essentially figures out who they are and how they fit into uh, being a human being and, and fit into their, you know, their, their culture, their um, uh, society, wherever they happen to be at that stage of their life. So it's a profoundly significant developmental process. It's the transition from childhood to adulthood it couldn't be more uh, important in terms of an individual's long-term uh, physical and mental health. So I can't really overstate the importance of, of puberty in terms of uh, its impact on uh, on humans. And, and so if you block that process, uh, you don't get physical maturity. So um, basically growth stops and the natural process of uh increasing bone density. So during puberty, humans put on more than 50% of the bone density that they'll ever have during their lifetime. And so if you interfere with that process, uh, as all of your peers put on bone density, uh, and you do not, you know, at the end of a two-year period of time on puberty blockers, your bone density is, is you know, 90% lower than, uh, than your age-matched peers, essentially. Um, so, uh, so there was nothing really new, and, and then and then also the study showed exactly what previous studies have shown, uh, which is that uh, the majority, you know, essentially all but one of the kids went on to cross sex hormones. So puberty blockers are not standalone; they're essentially the first treatment in this cascade. And then the other was that there were no changes in the psychological well being of those being treated by puberty blockers, uh, and uh, this is a little bit. Um, uh, you know, perhaps different than would have been found in in that uh, Dutch study, but um, which is the original study I was speaking of that the Endocrine Society uh, um, the world. referenced. Yeah, when they when they said, "Okay, now it's you know puberty blockers are are it, and psychotherapy is out, or psychological interventions are out." Uh, so, um, so basically, the UK descriptive study failed to show that these interventions are are really beneficial from a psychological standpoint, that they always lead to cross-sex hormones, and that the physical uh, maturity of that individual is um, is halted, the physical maturation. I looked at uh, what Michael Laidlaw was saying about puberty, and, you know, he, he seemed to suggest, I'm interested, you might know more, he seemed to suggest that there was an implication, like you said, about bone development and bone density, and maybe sex organ development. He said, we don't know the implications on sex organ development. If you go from puberty to a simulated chemical puberty, as in you don't go in through your own natural biological puberty. Mm -hmm. Instead, you pause and you pause everything. As far as I can see, you pause emotional development, cognitive development, mm -hmm. all sorts of uh, sexual development and the development of maybe their sexual orientation, maybe it's lesbian, gay or bisexuality. And then if you then go from a paused puberty to a simulated puberty, the, there seems to be implications that that's not the same as a biological puberty. I, I know this is, these are questions that aren't really answered because there isn't really studies, but I'm interested in your views. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a good, I think that's a good um, summary of, of what puberty blockers do. So the, the, so, you know, traditionally, right, the majority of kids who had childhood onset gender dysphoria, depending upon the study, it's, you know, somewhere between 60 to 98%. And, you know, the figure that has really been settled on is, you know, probably somewhere between 70, 75, 80% of kids who have childhood onset gender dysphoria will have resolution of their gender dysphoria as they um, enter and pass through puberty. And and one of the kind of the biggest, uh, you know, I call it gender clinic folklore um, things out there is that if a kid has, you know, a, an adolescent has gender dysphoria that's been persistent since childhood and, and worsens at early puberty, that that's a sign that there will be no resolution of the gender dysphoria. But there's no data to 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 show that. Uh, we, you know, we there's been no studies to show you know what percentage of kids uh, desist uh, or have resolution of gender dysphoria at what age. Um, it can occur. It appears at any point during puberty or even afterwards. And, and this doesn't even get into the fact that you know the predominant presentation now is not childhood gender childhood onset gender dysphoria, it's adolescent onset. And there have been no studies. Uh, well, you know, there's been one one look with. Um, Dr. Lisa Lippman, right? Uh, but there have been no significant, um, uh, you know, a bulk of, of studies done on this group uh, in terms of uh, desistance and when and why, um, you know, just kind of anecdotal clinical observations that um, uh, there's desistance or detransition at the time of, um, you know, brain maturation in the mid-20s, early, early to mid-20s. Um, so... Um, so that so that's a big a big misconception is that oh we must halt the pubertal development of a of a child because if they have worsening of gender dysphoria in early adolescence quote unquote that's a sign that they'll have persistent gender dysphoria but there's no there's no evidence to show that that is something that many gender clinicians believe but if you push them on this they're unable to provide any convincing data that that's actually the case and the counter argument to that is if you have somebody with gender dysphoria in early puberty, and this is why more study needs to be done, well, why not intensify psychological support at that time? Why do we have to halt puberty with a medical intervention? Uh, why, why not uh, get that individual and, and uh, his or her family uh, into more intensive psychological counseling? to help that child through the distress that comes with that, that may accompany early puberty, especially if a kid has gender dysphoria. And so that's the sort of stuff that needs to be studied and looked at and it hasn't. And, uh, and as a consequence, um, we're still in an experimental phase. To, to kind of um, build upon that important question, you raised a point earlier, Will, about, this pattern that sometimes happens where medicine creates some sort of purported solution and mm -hmm. then they offer that cure and then more and more people want it. And you're talking about something called iatrogenesis, where the cure for a condition can actually create more instances of that condition in the population. So, you know, I think to answer your question of why is psychological support not being offered it's because this entire explosion of young people demanding trans interventions has been built by the availability 
of transition. And I've heard in my work with young people, you know, I've heard a client talk about how uh, a metaphor of like, you know, I'm at the side of the road. I am bleeding. I am in pain. Mm-hmm. I'm distressed. And the only car to come by with a solution is like, hey, we can help you. Here's how to fix that. And it's better than no solution. Yeah. So it's really tricky because once young people have become convinced that they have gender dysphoria, they're experiencing this distress about their body, they're not really um, seeing any other choices. And so it becomes this reciprocal process of client demand and medicine being more than happy to provide this novel kind of experimental exotic solution. I think that's exceptionally well put and um, and really is the reason why uh, interventions need to be studied in you know in the classic scientific method way. You compare interventions to each other, you try to eliminate as many uh, confounding factors as possible. You look at the outcomes and then you make the best decision that you can and that that's just not been done here. And, and yes, it's, it's a, and so this myth has been perpetuated that, right, the only, the only way to treat gender dysphoria is with medical intervention. And that's, you know, that's another main reason for the um, organization that's been put together, the, the um, SEGM, because that is a myth. There's, there's, there's no data to support that. Um, So, yeah. I noticed that um, Michael Biggs, when he analyzed kind of the Tavistock study, he's a professor in, in Oxford. He pointed out that the reason why Polly Carmichael, who who's leads um, the Tavistock, the reason that she gave for running with the puberty blockers was that she was lobbied. She was lobbied by organizations such as Mermaids and uh, Jids, or Gyres. And um, she um, felt pressure from the parents. And there's a really interesting concept arising here where the, the client comes in or the patient comes in to people, to doctors and says, I know what I have and I need you mm-hmm. to give me the medication that I've read about on Dr. Google. Mm-hmm. And I presume you hear a lot about that in your practice in general, Will. Oh, yeah. So, th- yeah, th- that's a great point. This isn't right. This, in a sense, is is not a unique situation for uh, clinicians uh, where someone will come in and say, I'm convinced that, uh, you know, the example for an endocrinologist most typically would be uh, uh, hypothyroidism. So an underactive thyroid. So I'm, you know, I'm fatigued and I'm putting on weight. And so when I've read uh, that it's, it's my thyroid and and basically they're convinced that if if they come into the office, uh, and get thyroid hormone, a prescription for thyroid hormone, which has some risks. You know, if you are overprescribed thyroid hormone or you take it when you don't need it. Can I come in there? Uh, uh, my own husband, he yeah. put on weight a few years ago, which he's since lost. Well done to him. But when he put on weight, every single one of my friends helpfully suggested, should he get his thyroid checked? Yes. <laughs> yes right. He should check his supper and his dinner. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, for a long time, uh, if you went into a clinician's office uh, requesting thyroid hormone, um, they might give it to you. Uh, but what happened is a study was done, right? The, the scientific process proceeded as it should. And a study was done showing that if you give thyroid hormone to folks who don't need it <laughs> or in excess of what they need, uh, their risk of cardiac arrhythmias is essentially tripled 
and uh, uh, their risk of bone loss, um, wow. uh, osteoporosis goes up significantly because the thyroid hormone is indiscriminate. Uh, it will burn up body fat, but it also uh, burns up bone as well. And that overstimulation of the cardiac muscle over time increases the risk of cardiac arrhythmias. And so with that information, you know, clinicians were able to say, well, you know, I understand uh, that you're distressed. I'm not. I'm not saying that you're not, and I'm not discounting uh, what's occurred to you. I'm just saying that uh, if I if I give you this medication uh, uh, without a clear indication that you need it, I'm likely to do you harm. And based on the code of ethics and medicine, I I can't do that. And and so and the FDA actually came out and and black boxed thyroid hormone and said, hey. Uh, we're aware of this problem that thyroid hormone is being overprescribed. Uh, there's now clear evidence that it, it causes more harm than good and you should stop doing that. And so most clinicians will not prescribe thyroid hormone when it's indicated, but that means there are some clinics where, where you can get thyroid hormone if, if, even if you don't need it, that's still occurring, uh, but that's not, not that often. Um, uh, but that means that, you know, clinicians have to stand their ground and say, look, I, I, I understand that you want this. There's just, there's either no evidence that it will benefit you or there is evidence that it will harm you. It sounds incredibly similar to the, 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 the well, arc of puberty blockers. It, it is, but I actually see something which I think is more insidious going on. So we have talked a little bit about what happens when a patient or a family of a dysphoric child comes in demanding something, and then maybe the clinician is put in this position where they have to kind of appease the, the patient. But I've actually seen something different happen more often than not, which is really shocking. And the stories I've heard from parents are so unbelievable that unless hundreds of parents had corroborated these stories, I wouldn't believe them. But parents will, especially I see this happening um, with gender clinics, but even sometimes with regular psychotherapists or uh, school counselors or therapists will go to the, the clinician and say, you know, my child is dysphoric. What should we do? And expect that the therapist will provide, you know, a thoughtful, kind of well-rounded, whole yeah. person approach. And they are actually told you must halt the puberty mm -hmm. as soon as possible. And it's very yes. dangerous not to do something. Yeah. And even when the parents come with data and research and some of the same kind of um, concerns that any reasonable physician would have, they are actually criticized or belittled or ostracized by by the gender doctor or by the psychologist so not only are you know professionals supposed to be the ones to think carefully about whether the client demand makes sense but actually they are pushing and sometimes emotionally manipulating parents into these very extreme radical medical interventions and I'm very curious if if there's precedent for that in other areas of medicine, Will, because I, I was really shocked to hear these stories. And I actually did a little bit of investigation about the, the lobotomy epidemic in the 40s and 50s. And I found some shockingly similar kind of traits of the physicians that were pushing these procedures. But uh, luckily, that kind of came and fizzled out 
relatively quickly. What do you think, are there other precedents in medicine where doctors are actively kind of pushing their patients in, in one direction that doesn't have any evidence behind it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great observation. So it's almost comparable. What's, what's playing out in the clinician's office is, is almost comparable to what happened at the Endocrine Society meeting I attended. So if you ask that same you know, clinician who's saying, oh, if you don't stop puberty, you know, this is catastrophic and this is the only intervention. And then you flip over and you're like, well, how about an antibiotic for my cough? The doctor will say, oh, no, 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 that we've looked at this extensively. (laughs) There is, there is a ton of evidence showing that most of these respiratory symptoms are viral and we're going to create antibiotic resistance and you must follow the data and, and the science when it comes to antibiotics and viral infections. Um, but as soon as you ask, right, and then you ask the same clinician about puberty blockers, it's almost as if their mind has been um, captured. It's almost like a, a psychic epidemic that's infected clinicians where they stop. It, it's, they're, they're, they're regurgitating somebody else's information. And so, and so what I'm starting to see is even in the situation where they will say, no, 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 you can't take antibiotics for a viral infection, right? Because, you know, antibiotics don't treat viruses and we don't want to increase antibacterial resistance. They're actually also spouting somebody else's information in that situation. Oh, yeah. And, but, but they're but it's it sounds rational because the information they're spouting is actually scientifically based. And so what I'm starting to realize is that probably most of the clinicians in these situations, they're they're not actually thinking for themselves. Even when it comes to evidence-based medicine, they're just simply reading what the guidelines state. And then what you get from that individual is just what they've been programmed to say. And so if, if their programming, uh, you know, the sources of their programming have been affirmation based and, you know, all the information is, that's what you're going to get. And, and, and in their mind, it's completely logical because, uh, you know, they've been, it's actually no different than what they're doing with the evidence based mm-hmm advice they're giving that's also programming as well i thought that when you were talking about yourself at that conference in 2017 and how you went off to look at the data and you must have missed some landmark study i was thinking to myself i bet you most people thought the exact same thought and few went and looked for the study and few had the confidence to realize i keep up to date and this is low evidence and i'm not missing something most people are on the back foot we're all hurried we presume other people know better and we presume other people are more diligent and efficient and so they presume they bit their lip and they thought i'm missing something and i i don't want to embarrass myself by asking has the emperor got any clothes on yeah it's a great point and i think this gets to a broader issue of how clinicians are trained now uh, which is and 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 a related topic of unintended consequences. So, so when you try to elevate the level of practice um, across, you know, a population, for example, right? You put out guidelines that are supposed to help busy clinicians, um, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, as you've said, to to uh, 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 to to figure out how to make a good decision in a short period of time. 
Uh, but but what I'm just saying, spoon feed me. Spoon yes, feed. yes. Yeah. So what you end up with though is basically a bunch of um, programmed robots, for lack of better a better word, where they they are just regurgitating what the guidelines state. And, and so there needs, yeah, of course, there needs to be a you know fundamental uh, shift. And and you see this. I see this more in the UK than there is in the US in a good way. In the UK, they're much more skeptical. And that's one of the advantages of this um, international collaboration in SEGM is, you know, the UK clinicians, they're very skeptical of guidelines. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's, well, who wrote those guidelines? Well, were there any conflicts of interest? And the conflicts of interest uh, regulations are much stricter in the UK. Well, who wrote those guidelines? Well, this is rubbish. The, 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 we're not going to follow this, and and to my ears, this is this is music. This is wonderful, right? Because we almost never hear that in the United States. It's well, the guidelines say the guidelines say this, the guidelines say this, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, and so um, you know, I think it comes out of a a good place, which is well, if we put some smart people in charge uh, of these organizations who then put out guidelines, uh, we're going to elevate overall the quality of medicine that's provided and really minimize antibiotic resistance because now pediatricians are just not prescribing amoxicillin for every kid with a cough now, right? Yeah, but but there's a galactic difference between the health service in America and the health service in England because the health service in England is free. And the health service in America, people can make an awful lot of money by saying yes. And uh, and I say this from Ireland, where we've got this semi-private situation. So we've got a bit of both, if you follow me. Um, But I I think it's no accident that it's the NHS, who are a free service, who've come out with the lack where all the endocrinologists won't make the money and all the surgeons won't make the money with their new guidelines, because their new guidelines are going for a slower slower, more um, evidence-based approach. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good point. I think, um, yeah, yeah, many, many intersecting issues here, right? So there are some clinics, for example, that some hospitals in the United States, most clinicians are um, employed by hospitals now, a large majority, uh, where, um, where they have contracts with hospitals, where you're just paid a flat salary. Uh, and there are others where you're paid uh, for, the interventions that you perform or in the work that you do and the number of patients that you see. And it, and it provides an incentive uh, that could be misaligned with, you know, the ethical practice of evidence-based medicine for sure. Um, you know, it's, um, I think, I think as well though, I mean, it's a great point. I, I, I'm not sure I have a, a clean answer as to how to how to undo this, but certainly my own observations of my own colleagues and having experienced the educational process uh, um, to becoming you know uh, an MD, it's 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 not uh, it doesn't select for critical thinkers, and, and so I think that's part of the problem as well, and 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 that's I think that's a harsh reality that we're going to have to come to face at some point. Um, I, I'm aware that there's also a perception, I think, here in the U.S. that if you question the major current established guidelines for any medical practice, that you're some kind of conspiracy theorist yeah. or you're like an anti-vaxxer. And mm-hmm. I remember speaking with a family whose child was gender dysphoric and they had just started researching the topic and 
by the time they contacted me, they very much had suspicions about the affirmative model. But they said, you know, when we first started looking into this, we thought mm-hmm. everybody against this idea was like an anti-vaxxer. Mm-hmm. So it, it's very it's very interesting to me how though the guidelines around childhood dysphoria have changed so radically so fast, mm-hmm. the public perception is that, well, you know, if AMA says it, if endocrine society says it, it must be really well established, well documented evidence. Right. And, you know, to combine that with the way, unfortunately, some, you know, medical school students and residents are just perhaps lacking the initiative to take a look for themselves and just make sure that what they're learning is correct. Who does that? Like who goes to Mm -hmm. medical school and fact checks everything? (laughs) You've got it right. You're, you're, um, you know, yes, there's this, right. The sense that the folks in authority are have everyone's best interest at heart, et cetera, et cetera. It's really, it's really interesting. I mean, the other, the other thing at play here is, um, if you notice something that the rest of the herd is not going along with, or you notice something that the the herd is wrong about the way the herd is moving. Right. And you, and you start to notice that the pressure from the herd back towards you to, uh, to get back in line is, is immense and, um, and stressful. And, um, and so there's, there's an immense amount of pressure to, uh, not create a problem for yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's easier, um, to say, Oh, well, I'm going to defer to the experts. Uh, you know, I- I'm just going to sit this one out, uh, because, um, when you raise your hand and you start asking questions, uh, you know, you start to get a lot of attention, and and a lot of that can be negative attention from folks who may have an interest to uh, prevent your point of view from, uh, you know, having having some light um, shown on it. Well, I mean, I think there is this obviously pressure in the U.S. and it has, of course, existed elsewhere, too. But I'm aware that like with many kind of dark moments in medical history where something is widely adopted that is unsafe and then things start to turn a corner. It really feels like that's where we are now post, you know, this UK ruling. So before we let you go, Will, can you just give us an impression of how you think other responsible countries have responded to the UK ruling? Because I see a lot of countries pulling back. Mm-hmm. I've noticed I'm in Ireland and I've noticed that there has been, we we were very administered by the Tavistock and they were holding monthly clinics over in Ireland from the UK and that's going to be stopped and certainly it's already stopped and there has been a few leading articles from leading um, physicians, psychiatrists, doctors just in the last few weeks all in the wake of the Kira Bell that yeah, that has been a game changer in Ireland, there's no doubt about it and Mm -hmm. I I would be very surprised to see any puberty blockers um, prescribed to children in Ireland following this case. So I'm thrilled. I do want to say before we finish that I remember I had my own experience of gender dysphoria as a kid or certainly what would be described as it. Mm-hmm. And I I remember where I was the first day I, I was told about the concept of puberty blockers. And I just, as a psychotherapist, went, no, psychologically, no inappropriate. I remember how I felt as a kid. Had I been given the concept of you can stop 
this. Mm-hmm. You can stop your body growing, becoming a woman. Um, your this feeling of uncontro- out of control feeling with your body. You can stop it all. There's a pill out there that can stop this. I would have gone through seven oceans to get mm. it. It would have been such an intense, I need that pill to stop this crazy shit happening to my body. Mm-hmm. And I knew it. And as soon as I heard it, I just psychologically, puberty blockers are a very, very, very dangerous concept to bring into a child who is undergoing the hardest time of their childhood, the most difficult time, and yet the most appropriate time. Mm-hmm. Because for thousands of years, there's been rites of passage for children who are moving from childhood to adolescence, because it's a very important time, not only physically, but psychologically, that you're moving into the the kind of the, the weird space between childhood and adulthood. It's a weird space. It's a difficult space. And it's an essential p- space. So I just think psychologically, puberty is incredibly necessary. And you don't jump in on that without a lot of reason. Yeah, well said. Well, Dr. William Malone, we really appreciated having you on today to discuss all of this. Um, my pleasure. It's great to be yeah. here. Thank you. It was it was really great. Can you share with our audience um, where they might find you and also how to find Segum? Yeah. So the so the best place to um, to find me and information is at the Segum website. So it's uh, www.segm.org, and we have uh, uh, we have um, a lot of information there, uh, and it's growing. Um, and, uh, and the information there is purposefully applicable to, uh, a whole range of, of folks, folks who have no experience in this topic, want to learn more or, uh, up to clinicians who are interested in what the latest uh, research is, is showing. And uh, we'll have more and more information on that website, uh, with, um, a bibliography, uh, so that uh, clinicians and others can access um, uh, information. Um, and then uh, Segum also has an active uh, uh, Twitter feed. It's Segum Tweets. And then I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, you can find me there. Um, I think it's Will underscore Malone. And, uh, and I also send out information about gender dysphoria and uh, analysis of uh, current events and studies. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 